I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Leanna Brinded, head of Yahoo Finance UK. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series, Leanna and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key social issues. This season, we're focused on mental health at the time of global crisis. This week, I'm so proud to welcome my friend, Suki Sandhu, from Orderless and Involve to talk about intersectionality in DNI. Suki will begin today's episode with a brief talk on how those who tick multiple diversity boxes often face additional challenges and fall between the gaps when it comes to DNI initiatives in the workplace. When I'm asked to speak at events, it's often as a representative of a minority group, sometimes as someone who is LGBT plus, sometimes as someone who is an ethnic minority. Likewise, when I consult with companies on their DNI initiatives, and DNI I mean diversity and inclusion, they usually talk to me about actions for LGBT plus employees or their people of color or their women. We want to empower people to be their authentic selves, but on a practical level, we tend to do this by trying to place them in boxes or isolated communities. Now with me, I'm gay and I'm also an ethnic minority, but I'm also Sikh, working class, born and raised in a small town in the UK called Derby. These layers are all very important to me because it's a vital part of who I am as a person, especially being gay and Indian. How those two things have interacted in my life has given me a whole set of unique experiences and challenges, which has helped me shape the person that I am today. But this won't be true just for me. This will be true for anyone who belongs to more than one community or who ticks more than one box on an employee diversity survey. My intersectionality matters to me. It will matter for your diverse employees. So it needs to matter to you. And this is why. We're all aware that minority communities can face additional barriers in the workplace. But when you have more than one diverse characteristic, those barriers can multiply. Opportunity can be limited if you are an ethnic minority or a woman. Now think about the discrimination or withholding of opportunity that one person may face if they have all three. That discrimination doesn't just exist outside of minority communities, but can also exist within them. In 2017, London Pride, a celebration of difference and inclusion, was rightfully called out for not being inclusive of ethnic minorities. This is when ethnic minorities often face additional barriers to being open and expressing their true identity within their own communities and families. Similar problems can also exist within companies. Those who are intersectional too often feel that they have to choose, and I say choose, between which internal network they belong to or which internal community they have affinity with, often feeling they don't comfortably belong in any of them. Research shows that those from minority groups are more likely to suffer mental health problems than those from the majority group. They are also likely to have greater problems accessing effective healthcare services. Where services do exist to support them, the services, resources, and training of staff are all centered on specific characteristics and may not appreciate the complexities of when those characteristics are brought together. 
In short, for those that are intersectional, the challenges can be greater and the system to support them less effective. That's a combination which can only have deadly consequences. Studies show that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected ethnic minorities and a healthcare system that often struggles with meeting diverse needs is under increased pressure. We talk about the advantages of remote working, but for some young LGBT plus people from more traditional or religious cultures, the office or the factory floor may be the only escape they have from a homophobic home life. Some organisations were only just getting to grips with the issue of intersectionality, and I now worry that the new financial pressures on DI budgets will mean that progress slows. But I don't just want to focus on the negative, I also want to point to opportunity. The pandemic has made many business leaders realise that every worker they employ is an individual and support needs to be more personalised than they had previously imagined. The concentration on the diverse needs of individuals gives CSR and DI managers a brand new focus to build on, a focus which is more aligned to intersectional thinking. It is therefore vital that we keep CSR up in the agenda in the post-COVID world, not as a nice to have, but as an essential part of a successful business which can retain the best talent out there. It's time to start connecting the dots in our initiatives, acknowledge the complexity around identity, and to stop thinking of diversity as individual and separate strands. ERGs, executive sponsors, and role models need to stop working in silos and coordinate their efforts and understanding. When it comes to inclusion in business, there has been progress. However, I believe we are reaching the limit of what we can achieve with a purely segregated approach. To advance, we need to not just think outside of the box, but remove the boxes altogether. We need to celebrate and support diversity, not just in one, two, three, four different forms, but in the hundreds of different forms that exist. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Thank you so much, Suki, for that. You've obviously covered um, lots of different elements in it. But there's one thing we definitely want to pick up on, and it's talking about um, understanding the kind of, I suppose, double or triple whammy in terms of what could be affecting mental health for marginalised communities, and especially when you look intersectionally right now, because we are um, still living through a coronavirus pandemic. There are some communities, um, like the Black or Asian communities, that have been disproportionately affected by uh, coronavirus. Why are they disproportionately affected? And also at the same time, what impact is that having, not just on their mental health, but also how they show up in the workplace? Yeah, so it's it's actually, when you when you read the stories around corona and the updates from the government, it, it's actually horrifying. And I feel like we're becoming more and more numb to the numbers. It's becoming a statistic rather than realizing actually that these are human beings. And so when you're seeing the statistics around the disproportionate impact on ethnic minority communities, of which I am part of that community, 
it, it, I'm angry, I'm really sad, and I feel like we're not doing enough to try and help those communities. So, so some of the statistics I'm sure you've heard, but when black people are 1.9 times more likely to die than white people, um, Bangladeshis and Pakistanis are 1.8 times more likely to die, and Indians around 1.5 times more likely, there's a reason why people are angry and frustrated with what's happening. And when you try and break down in terms of why that's happening, um, if you look at the um, ethnic minorities specifically, that there could be, when it comes to health issues, there are potentially a higher amounts of underlying health issues, largely related actually to socioeconomic inequality and greater difficulty accessing effective healthcare. When you look at living conditions, 30% um, of Bangladeshi households in the UK are considered overcrowded. 15% of black African households in the UK are considered overcrowded, yet only 2% of white British households are overcrowded. So you can immediately see the disparity in terms of how the numbers can be skewed and impacting ethnic minorities more so. And then when you think of like the workplace and occupation, one in five in the NHS are ethnic minorities. Mm. That's huge. And then when you look at LGBT+, like seeking healthcare, the NHS know that this is the problem. So they know that health outcomes for LG are generally worse, sorry, for LGBT people than the rest of the population. Um, and I think it's because they they feel that they're not, their needs aren't taking into consideration. Um, a Stonewall survey in 2019 kind of showed that one in seven LGBT people, so that's about 14%, avoid seeking health care for fear of discrimination. That's kind of where we are. That's a fact. This isn't, I'm not going to try and sugarcoat it for you because that's not my job, but we need to be aware and open, open our eyes to what the issues are so that we can have solutions for them. It's shocking sometimes when you listen to those statistics. Um, I want to pick up on the fact that we've been talking about intersectionality a lot, and it's become a bit of a buzzword. I think we might be at a place in time where some people use it as a buzzword, some people use it sincerely, and some people probably still don't know what it means. So I was wondering if you could quickly give us a little bit of what you think people need to understand about intersectionality and what it means to you. It's very much around those different layers of identity that make up who you are as a person. So I think I mentioned that with me personally, to make it real for people, I'm Indian, I'm Sikh, I'm working class, I'm from Derby, and it's th that is intersectionality. And that's just my identity. So you've got to also remember that that women that have the we talk about the triple glass ceiling where they might be a queer black woman. Mm -hmm. um, but also you've got to remember that also white men also have layers of identity to them. They are also working class. They are also um, private, being privately educated as part of your identity as well. It doesn't apply just to one community. And it's kind of that understanding that you need to create or building bridges across those identities to ensure that we're educating ourselves more about the challenges that different people face. The more that we can learn about each other, the more empathy you build, the more understanding, the more change that you'll see. So even if you just compare it, for instance, to the um, gender uh, movement within boardrooms in the UK, let's just talk about that for a second. So you've seen huge progress in the last 10 years. Now, the reason for that progress is because a lot of the CEOs and chairmen that are in charge are largely men, fact, they still sit in the majority of seats of power, but they will have daughters coming into the workplace. So in their immediate circle at home, they've got daughters that are experiencing issues in, in business and tapping their dad on the shoulder saying you need to do something. So they're immediately building that um, empathy with that identity. But then think about ethnicity. 
if they're all white, how many of them have got ethnic minorities in their immediate social circle? We already know that there's a lack of representation of ethnic minorities in the boardroom and leadership teams. That's that's a, we know that that's a fact. The Parker Review will show you the stats. It's woeful. So they're not even getting any ex- exposure in inverted commas to ethnic minorities in the workplace. So how are they building empathy? And so it's just trying to get them. To, and we haven't even spoken about LGBT in the workplace. Like I mean, it's invisible. At least with gender and race, you can see it. Whereas with LGBT, it's invisible. You kind of have to like self-declare and come out. But then how inclusive is your environment to let that person come out? So when you try and bring those different identities together, so imagining a queer black woman, she can't hide her race, she can hide her sexuality, and she can't hide her gender. So she's got different factors that she's having to, to connect with. And like, like I said earlier, which, commu- which, which employee resource group should she be joining? If there's one for ethnic minorities, and even then the ethnic minority community could have multiple ERGs because they might do one specifically for Chinese community, they might do one for Indian and Pakistani, then they might do one for the black community. So she's already been segregated into the black box in that ERG, but then she also ticks the gender in the LGBT box as well. So it's 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 trying to have an appreciation that identity can't just be one box. We have to understand the different layers of a person. So Suki, I'd love to pick up on that because obviously intersectionality is fundamental in getting a real, truly diverse and inclusive um, workplace and um, identifying that and understanding people multifaceted. Um, However, there is this, um, I feel, a moment um, of while people are still trying to grasp what um, intersectionality means um, and how we need to have this more personalized approach and making it more inclusive. We are in a moment in time where what we're talking about before, where there are very specific communities that are in life and death situations right now because of disproportionate, um, you know, treatment in society. So whether it's coronavirus for the Asian community, whether it's um, for Black Lives Matter because of police brutality and also systemic racism for the Black community, how do we have this conversation and educate about the importance of intersectionality without skipping all the steps and going straight to a all lives matter moment, which is prevalent across social media, across the workplace and a lot of in a lot of spaces. There's no there's no hiding from what's happening right now globally. So if you just take the Black Lives Matter movement just in itself, um, it is appalling the way black community are treated in society and in business. There's some great speeches around um, how we all need to take our knees off their necks and stopping them from getting the job, getting the promotion, getting access to healthcare. There are so many challenges they have that even me as a brown person, I know that I need to step up and support them even more as an ally to that community. And um, and people, and so when people try and use the term all lives matter, it's pretty known that it's it's a fairly, I don't want to say the word offensive, but what it does is it takes, it distracts from where the current fire is. The whole point of Black Lives Matter is that we know that they are being treated far worse than other communities right now, but that doesn't take away your rights. That doesn't mean that you're going to suffer. It's like if someone's house is burning down, you want to get the fire station to to put that fire out. And it's like someone saying, well, what about my house? (laughs) 
like, well, the house is fine right now. Can we try and save the one that's burning? That's the situation we're in right now. And people are quite rightly angry because they're not seeing that progress. Um, and in, I think intersectionality is really important here when it comes to allyship. So I think it's really important, for instance, that the LGBT community, the um, uh, ethnic minority in terms of non-black communities, all need to be helping in terms of the actions and behaviours that they can take to try and support the black community. And a lot of this comes down to, again, education and empathy. And it shouldn't be it shouldn't be my job. I know I know I consult and help businesses on how to be inclusive, but actually. Racism is almost like alcoholism. You have to if you think about Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to first of all admit there's a problem and then you have to go and seek help. But you have to go and seek help yourself. You can't force someone to go and do it. So someone has to want to read up around what racism is. They have to want to read the right books around white privilege. They, someone shouldn't have to feed it to them. Now in business, I think it's slightly different because they have an obligation to ensure that everyone is welcome. So they need to be providing those kind of trainings and resources that are gonna support people in their education and learning in case they're not doing it at home themselves. But when you make it voluntary in a business, the right people don't show up. The ones that you want to go through the training don't show up. So what people are looking for now is genuine action. They want to see things change. And if they don't, like I said earlier in my speech, employees are activists, they'll just leave. And they don't even have to leave their homes anymore to find a new job. <laughs> Literally, all the processes clients are hiring virtually because they can't meet in person. Like, remember, I run an executive search firm, Dallas, which manages these senior appointments, and pretty much everything is done virtually. So they don't even need to leave their home. So if they're not feeling included at home and they're not seeing their company take action, why would they stay? Why would they want to stay working for your business? So it's really important that um, this is when like the intersection, the focus has to be on the black community. And then when you factor in LGBT, um, we've got our own challenges in LGBT. You've got the L, the G, the B, the T, and then the plus. We use plus to be more inclusive because there are so many letters now that even sometimes I can't keep up as an LGBT plus man myself. And I'm constantly learning about new identities. But when you think, but the trans community, for instance, sometimes don't want to be part of the LGB community because they see it as a separate issue. And um, from my perspective, I think we're stronger together and we face the same kind of discrimination. So we should be helping each other. But then B is probably the most silent. Bisexuals don't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's almost like it doesn't exist. Like uh, they can't win either way. LGBT people think it's, you know, buy now, gay later. So they'll be an LGBT anyway. And then straight people think they're greedy. They're the kind of perceptions that you have in, in society and in business. And so there is a lot of work to do. We have to remember that diversity and inclusion is not easy. It is really hard because it's really hard to try and if you think about leadership and management generally, people, there's not a science to people. Let's just forget about identity first and foremost. Let's just think about personalities and also like the styles like introvert and extroverts. They're all going to behave and act very differently. They all need a different type of management and coaching and performance objective setting and a different kind of way of maybe giving that feedback because people respond differently in different scenarios. So we have to remember that, that because there isn't any science to people, we have to all be more human. I, I almost get, get annoyed with the silos because it should be around human inclusion. Like we haven't even mentioned disability. What about disability? 
Like the stats around the unemployment levels in the disabled communities is awful. It is really, really awful. And there's a lot of disabled people out there that really want to work and they can't get a job. And it's only going to be 10 times worse now because of the crisis and the levels of unemployment we have globally because of the crisis. So we have to try and think about human inclusion as much as we can, which then factors in the intersectionality of different identities. I do have, sorry, a very quick follow up to that, because you bring up a really great point when it comes to disability and accessibility. And obviously, at the moment, like you said, um, you know, we are in a position in the world of this new normal where people do not need to leave their home to get another job. They do not. They can totally like someone sitting in London can go and work for a company in Atlanta right now because it's normalized that we can all be sitting from our kitchen table or our bedroom and still do a great job. So do you see this as actually an opportunity to diversify the workforce and bring in more um, of those who are disabled or need um, different requirements in terms of accessibility because now the excuse of not being able to accommodate in whatever that guise is has yeah. been like stamped out. Yeah so absolutely so one of the great things about the pandemic and the opportunity that I referred to earlier is that the everyone working remotely has almost equalized and democratized the workplace. So um, so someone who is, for instance, physically disabled, where you might have needed to make the adjustments in the office, if they don't need to come into the office, they can work perfectly from home. So you would do like almost your health assessment at home to make sure they're set up, but it's not it's not costing them to have to do any physical adjustments to the, the working space or the office. Um, and when you think about even just conversations generally, so I spoke to uh, someone in the C-suite of a major bank uh, this week, and she was just saying how um, in the office, she'd be in her little shiny windowed corner office, her assistant outside, um, sitting outside. And so she was almost seen like in that ivory tower and, uh, and inaccessible. Whereas on a Zoom, when you're all equal boxes on a Zoom, that hierarchy is almost broken down. It's not there anymore. And so she was saying how when she's had like people that might be five steps below reach out and saying, hey, I'm doing an all hands for our retail business leaders. Would love if you could be our surprise guest. Like if she was in the office, probably a lot more challenging for her to do that. But because she's at home, she can literally maximize her time to spend that 20 minutes going into that session. So it has kind of made it a lot more egalitarian. And it also means that people can hire from more communities from different locations, like you say. So if someone... Because some of the excuses around race that you might get in terms of, oh, there just aren't any ethnic minorities in, I don't know, Blackpool. It's a very white neighborhood and there's no ethnic minorities. Well, okay, that might be true, but you can still look a bit harder before the pandemic, uh, uh, um, widen the net of where you would sit geographically and hope that people could relocate to Blackpool. It doesn't have to be in Blackpool, right? But now that we're in all remote working, Um, why can't you look in other areas where there are higher levels of ethnicity? You could now target people in Birmingham or Leicester, for instance. So it's kind of taking away those barriers to try and create more diversity and more, um, it's effectively leveling the playing field. That's what it's doing. And I, I can only applaud that. It's been transformational, if I'm honest, for business. Yeah, it's, it's really great to hear that there are actually as hard as it is to say some positives of the current situation that we're in, but it's good to, to see them, to identify them and acknowledge them so that we can take them forward as we 
you know, move out of the stage that we're in at the moment into a new normal, take the good lessons that we've learned and don't forget about them. And in talking, you've mentioned a lot about identities, the perceptions that they have in business. And you also mentioned earlier employee surveys. I was wondering, do they matter? Does it matter to have a box on an employee survey? Is it better to ask or is it not better? Um, I think employee surveys, first and foremost, are incredibly important. So and then I'll come to the box bit. I think the um, I think giving your employees a voice so they can be heard um, is really important, but they have to be listened to. There's a difference to collecting their comments and, and feedback and acting on it. And there's a difference between collecting it and just putting it in a box and not doing anything. Um, and even this whole like return to work conversation people are having, I don't even like the term return to work because it makes it sound as though people aren't working right now. And it's not true. If anything, uh, I think people are working twice as hard because there's a crisis, there's high unemployment, GDP has fallen ridiculously. We're entering into the Great Depression of our time. We've never seen anything like this before. So people are scared, so they're working twice as hard. That whole that whole um, idea of people talking about taking up a hobby, work-life balance. I'm like, where is all this phantom free time that people keep talking about? Because I definitely don't have any. And I'd quite like to take up sewing. But, you know, I don't have time to do that. Um, so actually, the, the surveys, I think, are really important. So when people are talking about return to work and thinking to get people back into the office, what do your employees want? This is exactly when a survey is critical. Ask them. What do they want? Do they? Because actually, I'm, I'm quite comfortable here. I have an amazing working home arrangement. I have a lovely apartment in the Barbican. Um, one of the bedrooms is, has always been my home office. I'm really lucky where I am. But like I said earlier, people don't have, have all those luxuries. I have colleagues in my team that are flat sharing and they're working from like the breakfast bar in their kitchen and the Wi-Fi is not great. Like, so it's not for everyone, but we're also not in normal remote working right now. We're in a pandemic, we're in a crisis of social distancing. So they can't even go to a cafe near their home to work from if they wanted to. Now, the reason why the box is important on the survey is because you need to also capture what minorities you have in your business. How do you know what diversity you have if you're not collecting the data? But the way to collect the data is to ensure that your communities know why you're collecting it. So there has to be that level of trust around it. And obviously there's the GDPR issues, which we won't go into, which is always a pain. But um, trying to make sure that you understand like the demographics of your organization is going to inform what kind of interventions you may need to include in your business. So, and if you're finding, for instance, on the LGBT box, where you normally have, you choose an identity or rather not say, if you've got a percentage ticking rather not say, that kind of implies that people don't feel like they can come out in an, anon in an anonymous form. So what does that say about your culture? So I know CEOs that have taken action based on the fact that they've had a percentage tick the not rather not say. Can you imagine if it's an, also the ethnic minority box, you can also rather not say. So it's the same, the same kind of philosophy. If they're ticking that, then there's an issue with your culture. So I think the boxes are important from that perspective because collecting the data will inform the strategies and interventions that you implement and the issues that you have. Why is it important? Apart from the business part, apart from that, we all know that the more diversity, the you know greater success companies seem to be. Why is it important to not only have a range of diverse voices and faces, in a leadership team that isn't just C-suite, 
but also from director level, senior director level, VP level, all those echelons and um, flagging up as well why it's important to have lists like what Involve does in terms of executive role models. Role models for me, this is about visibility. There are some role models, for instance, that are very much like, oh, I don't want to lead with my diversity. So, for instance, I don't want to be the gay CEO. I want to be the CEO who happens to be gay. Or I don't want to be the black um, general counsel. I want to be the general counsel who happens to be black. And I'm like, particularly when it comes to race, I was like, you do know you're black, right? Because you can't hide it. Everyone can see when you walk into the room. Sexuality is different because it's invisible. And we touched on that earlier. So they have to come out. So, for instance, we get people's permission when we do the outstanding LGBT role model list because we're not in the business of outing people. Because also coming out is a very personal thing and they should be able to decide on their own time when they want to do that. So that's not what we're about. But role models are important because they people want to be who they can see. If they can see themselves represented at the top, then it gives them the hope that they can get there too. So when you're, it challenges stereotypes about where people expect these minorities to be. So when you think of LGBT specifically, yes, we're very good in arts and entertainment and media, etc. But we're more than entertainers. We're more than um, uh, uh, Graham Northern or Alan Carr, who are fabulous. I love them. But we're also CEOs in banking. We're also managing directors in um, energy. We are partners in law firms. That's the kind of message we're trying to get across. And it's about inspiring the next generation of leaders. Like we have to give them hope. We have to give them something to to uh, try and achieve. And actually, in light of what's happening with Black Lives Matter, is that people are just sick of not seeing themselves. They've waited long enough. Like no more excuses. I've heard all of them over the years. I've been doing this. I've been in this world for 17 years, and I've been banging this drum around representation for over 10. So I mean, I've heard all the excuses in the sun about why about why companies don't want to do it. Oh, you know, we're not sure we're ready for it. Um, oh, I'm not sure we have the time. I don't think we have the budget. So and whereas now it enough is enough. So when you and also employees will call it out. You've seen it on social media yourselves, I'm sure. When you see Nike posting, you know, their campaign about Black Lives Matter, and then someone's like, sorry, Nike, how many black people do you have in your leadership team? Even I was shocked at that. Because Nike, if you think about who they're sponsoring, the athletes, the sport, full of black leaders that they sponsor and support, yet they have not one black person in their leadership team is outrageous. And so actually it's about um, this is this is a really amazing moment for role models because role models sharing their story will inspire and hopefully take encourage people to take action. And as you said, Liana, these role models are at all levels in an organization. They don't have to be in the C-suite, which is why we also publish the future leaders role model list, because we want to celebrate those that are climbing the career ladder that are also doing great things. And you know the great things they're doing because we're almost in tears reading all their submissions every year. Like, it's so encouraging seeing the amazing work they're doing. Like, I'm sure Liana and I both shed a tear at least three times a year when we read them. (laughs) Bare minimum. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's really. (laughs) So for me, it's about reminding them that it's not about them. It's about helping the next generation and giving them hope that they can get there too. I agree. I think it's it's really important to have role models and be able to see yourself. There's that statistic that people that are out at uni that are LGBT, I think it's nearly two thirds will go back in the closet in the workplace and role models have to be a part of that. What I'd love to understand a bit more about 
is the impact that that kind of thing has on mental health. And mental health, I think, is very closely linked to inclusion because diversity probably is about the representation side. Inclusion is about how you help that representation belong. Um, and again, it's very closely linked to the environment and culture in which people are working. Like, Are they able to call their manager if they're having a bad day? They might be suffering from depression. And rather than trying to say it's a sick day because they got food poisoning, can they honestly say to their employer, look, I can't get out of bed. I'm having an episode today. I just need the day off. And I think we're quite far from that in, in business. Um, and I know that I know companies are trying to do more around it. And again, it comes just practical things around having like um, mental health um, first aiders trained in the offices of different floors, having like an employee assistance program where they've got somewhere to call and get that guidance and support that they need. And again, there's not like a silver bullet that's going to solve it all. I do think mental health is very closely linked to physical health. And I think that we need to talk a little bit more about the physical health people can have. And I know we talk about, obviously, we're in lockdown and indoors, like things like being able to take a step away from your screen. If you're on Zooms all day, it is draining. It's exhausting. I had my first migraine a few weeks ago. I've never had a migraine in my entire career. And I, I've never really had sympathy for anyone that had a migraine because I, I'm from a working class, class family in Derby. So we don't get sick. You weren't allowed. If you got ill, you just take some Nurofen or ibuprofen and you just got on with it. That's kind of my family's perspective on it. So I would always be like, if someone said they had a migraine and they had a day off, I was like, oh, really? They just need to get over it and have some ibuprofen. Whereas I, for the first time, had a migraine and it was debilitating. It was awful. And it, honestly, I felt really ill for half the week. I felt like I was, I, I slept all afternoon and I was really open and honest with my team about what was going on with me. I could have pretended and said that I just had food poisoning or whatever. I was like, no, I need to be honest with them and say, like, this is this is how I'm feeling and I'm really sorry and I'm not going to be online and my assistant's there to manage anything that you need from my inbox or whatever. Um, but, I, but the advice around, for instance, going outside for some fresh air and going for a walk so that you're not sat down all day, um, the rise in meditation apps and um, where you can do meditation in the day or before you go to sleep. We're, we're, we're exposed to so much data. We're always on social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, SMS, WhatsApp, LinkedIn messages, DMs. Like, honestly, it is, it is incessant. And it's, it is just, when do you get to switch off? But yeah, the, the conversation on mental health is, is getting more and more airtime, but we have a lot more to do. Thank you very much, Suki. I know that your uh, time is very precious and um, it's always fantastic hearing what you've got to say and being in conversation with you. But um, before we go, I'm sure that lots of people want to find out where they can find you, um, more about Involve and all this. Um, so where can they find you on the web? Thanks, Liana. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm on all social media platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Mr. Suki Sandu, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and our websites are ordellis.com and involvepeople.org. Um, and I suppose the final thought that I kind of leave you with, given what's happening on the Black Lives Matter movement, is this is a huge moral moment for change. I think people have waited long enough for change in business. And if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? So no more excuses. And the key thing is, is to take action and just bloody do something. That's the key thing. Just take action. Less words, more action. It's a really great message to leave us with. Thank you. Thank you.
Find videos and articles about this series on the Yahoo Finance UK site. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe to hear more. Coming up next week, we'll be chatting to Hayden Taylor, founder of Unlock, about the effects the global crisis is having on young people.